Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. From New York, we're joined by Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who's been talking to Amy Keane about deregulation of the Dodd-Frank rules. This week, we'll be discussing Bankia, the Spanish bank, and its opportunity for consolidating the market. Secondly, a look at shadow banking as a new FSB estimate puts the scale of this industry at $45 trillion. And finally, a look at US bank deregulation. First, though, to Bankia. And Martin, we've been speaking to Jose Ignacio Gorigolzari, the chairman of Spain's fourth biggest bank, and he had some very interesting things to say to us. We started by asking him about the government's 60% stake and whether that was attractive to other banks in Spain as a consolidation play. Here's what he had to say. For us, as management team, our most important objective now is the privatization. I mean, because, well, we have been working for the last six years, the bank is normalized, and, and we have a good bank, a, a very good bank, I believe. But, um, and privatization for us is a very important step because, well, we cannot imagine to go back to the politicization of the bank. Having said that, well, uh, if you analyze the situation of Bankia after the popular move, Bankia is the perfect fit for everybody. Mm, yes, because if you analyze what is the situation of BBVA or Bankia or Sabadell, we are the perfect fit for all of them. But our idea, our idea is to keep Bankia in a standalone basis. I mean, I think that we have a strategic plan. We, I think that we have the critical mass, and I think that Bankia can go ahead in a standalone basis. He then went on to talk about how that overhang of government shareholding was a potential problem for the bank in the short term. You cannot delay. That is a very tricky question. I mean, on the one hand, you are establishing a deadline in the year 19. Of course, the market is expecting that you are going to sell stakes of Bankia. And the problem about that is that you have an overhang, a permanent overhang. And that's very yeah. tricky because on the one hand, the government has to say that they are going to sell. And at the same time, that affects very clearly the price of your share. Finally, another aspect of being part government-owned that Mr. Goyri Gosari had a go at, if you like, regarding pay restraint. The only restriction that we have is pay. I cannot receive more than 500,000 euros per year. That is a sort of cap. And plus 50% of that in terms of variable, in terms of bonuses. Right. So at least 50% must be bonuses. No, at most. That's the restriction that we have. One of the funny things, and we were talking about that, I remember my first role so here and in the States, everybody asking about how much money are you going to get and what is going to be the bonus, and especially in the States, people couldn't believe it. Well, but personally, I don't give too much importance to that, but personally, I think that is a tremendous mistake. 
I mean, I think that it's much better the policy that has been followed, for example, here in UK with Lois, with Antonio Horta, because I believe that that's the normal thing. I mean, in my opinion, I don't mind, but I think that it's not a correct policy because you have to be able to attract talent. So, Martin, what did you make of all of those comments? Quite interesting, quite outspoken, actually, for someone who's majority government owned. It is. And I spoke to quite a few people after the interview with Mr. Guri Golzari about how did they interpret this. And people who study the Spanish banking market said that he was clearly trying to send a message they thought to two sets of people. One is the government and the message for the government is get on with it. You've got this self-imposed deadline of the end of next year to sell down this 60% stake, which is worth more than 7 billion euros. So you need to get a move on if you're going to get all of those shares sold by the end of next year. The second target audience for his comments, people think, were the rival banks and in particular BBVA and Sabadell. Now, why only those two, you might ask? It's because there are basically five big banks in Spain. And what most people think is going to happen is at some point, you're going to go down to four. You've got Banco Santander, which has recently bought Banco Popular. So they are done in terms of their Spanish acquisitions. They're not going to buy anything else in Spain of the size of Bankia. CaixaBank has the biggest market share in Spain. They are not seen as likely to do a deal because they're already maxed out. So that leaves you BBVA and Sabadell. Sabadell is, most people think, too small to do a deal for Bankia unless they do an all-share deal. But the problem with that is it basically effectively nationalises Sabadell because if you pay shares, obviously the government's going to end up with a big stake in the combined entity. And then you've got all of those bonus restrictions and pay restrictions, which Mr. Gogilos Golzari talked about. So no bank really wants that. But they might think that if they allow the alternative to happen, which is the government continues to sell down the stake a bit to say 30 or 40% left, and that allows BBVA to come in, pay cash for the government's remaining stake, and then a mixture of cash and shares for the other investors, the other shareholders, and merge with Bankia, that would leave Sabadell as the obvious target for a foreign buyer. And they'd be considered too small to be viable as a standalone institution. So tactically, it's a bit of a chessboard going on in Spain. I think it's really interesting that he was sending these messages out to say, you know, A, come on, government, get on with it. And B, you guys better start manoeuvring if you want to get us the, one of the last big prizes left in Spanish banking. And most people think he's done a very good job and he would stand a very good chance if they did merge with BBVA, where he used to work, by the way, of replacing Francisco Gonzalez as the executive chairman, or at least maybe the non-executive chairman of BBVA, because he's seen as having done an excellent job at turning around Bankia, which was a bit of a basket case after the financial crisis. As you say, he's very well respected. And of course, Mr. Gonzalez is expected to step down very soon. He is expected to step down, I think, this year. Yeah. Very good. Well, we'll keep a close eye on all of that. Let's move on to our second story, a look at the FSB. This is the global body that oversees central banks and regulatory policy. And it's come out with a new estimate of the size of the shadow banking industry. This is entities that engage in bank-like activity, but aren't actually banks and are not regulated as banks, and is therefore a concerning area. Caroline, what have the FSB said exactly? 
So I think the main finding was that in 2016, shadow banking globally grew by nearly 8% to $45 trillion. And that's actually on a conservative measure. And the big boost to shadow banking was really that the FSB was able to include data from China and Luxembourg for the first time. And obviously, those jurisdictions are particularly important, China, because of its obvious size, but also that it's home to a lot of shadow banks. And Luxembourg is home to investment funds and also treasury functions and things like that. So when we're talking about shadow banks, having data from these two jurisdictions in particular is really important. And it's the first time that the FSB has been able to do that. So, Caroline, of all the risks that the FSB is concerned about, what do you think is the greatest one? Well, this report isn't really about risk. The reason that the FSB does this monitoring exercise is to allow the data to inform its policy responses. We've already seen various policies that the FSB put out to try and deal with investment vehicles, for instance, particularly open-ended funds. And they did that early last year. And IOSCO, which is the securities umbrella watchdog, is trying to what they call operationalize those recommendations at the moment. And last summer as well, the FSB, led by Mark Carney, who is the governor of the Bank of England, said that they thought that they had tamed the biggest risks in shadow banks. So, yeah, just to reiterate, this report isn't actually about detailing risk per se. It's just about showing how much the sector has grown. And of course, the Chinese and Luxembourg data are new. Are those some of the biggest areas of concern? Well, I think the inclusion of Luxembourg and China make this a much more compelling and detailed report because both jurisdictions are really important when we're talking about shadow banking. Luxembourg is home to collective investment vehicles and investment funds, more to the point, and also banks' treasury functions. When we're talking about China, I think what's important to note is that these are 2016 figures and therefore already quite out of date. China has launched a crackdown on its shadow banking sector since then, which is continuing. And so I think when we are considering where we really are with shadow banking and how far we've come since the financial crisis, I think what will be really interesting is to see the future statistics coming out of the FSB that will show us where we are now in 2018 following this Chinese crackdown. Well, let's finally go to New York, where Ben McClanahan has been talking to Amy Keane about deregulation and the latest attempts in Congress to water down the Dodd-Frank rules. Ben, the proposed bill, it's intended to relax some of the rules, particularly on small and mid-sized lenders. Can you just explain what does it entail? Who will it affect? Okay, you're right. It's been billed as something to relieve some of those burdens of Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank was designed to rein in some of the excesses on Wall Street that, you know, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, all the big guys were getting up to. And so that law was put together. But uh, since then, uh, lots of opponents of Dodd-Frank have argued that uh, much smaller banks have been swept up in these rules. So it's inappropriate to, to bind them with this, these kind of ties that were supposed to be reigning in the, the biggest, most menacing banks. And so this bill, as presented by um, Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho, is, is supposed to address that. And you can tell that by, by the title of it. It's called the Economic Growth Regulatory Relief and Consumer Protection Act. You know, it's impossible to argue against all those things. So within it, there are a couple of provisions to release uh, banks beneath 10 billion of assets, you know, the so-called community banks, uh, from some of those stringent mortgage underwriting rules, which were developed in the wake of the crisis to you know, improve underwriting at Citi, at Chase, 
uh, Bank of America and so on. So that they'll get relief on that front. It's essentially lighter documentation. It's um, lower underwriting standards. And it, there's also some stuff in there about rural loans. So that those banks should potentially benefit from that. In many ways, this is being billed as you know rescue for communities. Mm-hmm. This is meant to encourage small business lending and but what is actually sort of hiding behind some of this proposed legislation <laughs> that's getting you know people like Senator Elizabeth Warren right. well, quite I think upset? She, she's not really upset about the the trillion dollar banks. There's the huge mega banks, the too big to fail banks. What people are upset about is is particularly the the requirements uh, that's going to lift the threshold for what the Fed calls enhanced supervision. That's essentially tougher regulation, and that's going to go up under this bill from 50 billion assets to 250 billion assets, and that's aimed at relieving some of the pressure on the big domestic banks, well the big regional banks that have suffered under this regime designed, as we've said, to rein in uh, the very biggest Wall Street banks. And in that, there's an open question as to whether this relief will extend to foreign banks. But uh, opponents of the bill are saying, hey, watch out, we're we're essentially um, deregulating the likes of BNP Paribas, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, uh, Santander. Uh, Those two in particular, Deutsche Bank and Santander, uh, were described by a senator last week as troubled and troubling banks. Of course, Deutsche's record of getting into trouble in the US is, is, is a long one, as is Santander, is yet to pass a stress test cleanly. So yeah, that, that's the big question. It, it'll be thrashed out in the Senate over coming days and also in the House, uh, the extent to which foreign banks will also be reprieved. And so why now? What makes now the time for legislators to take this out? Yeah, I think a, a window has, has opened up. Talking to my colleagues in DC, they say that Republicans have become frustrated at the lack of uh, bipartisan action on several fronts, on immigration, for example, on gun control uh, in, in another. But they, they say that this has suddenly become a realistic, uh, possible bipartisan effort. And of course, there's 51 Republicans in the Senate behind this. Uh, There's also maybe 12, maybe 13 Democrats also preparing to cross the divide on this one. Well, there's three in particular, three senators, Tester of Montana, Heitkamp of North Dakota, and Donnelly of Indiana. Now, all three states went Trump in 2016. So if if those people can demonstrate a commitment to to doing this, that, that will certainly help. And, and Signature Bank, which is right on the cusp of that 50 billion in assets, that's been making sure by supplying them with lots and lots of donations. The sums aren't absolutely vast, but they clearly suggest a, a determined campaign from banks on the cusp of 50 billion to get this thing done. And of course, some of the more progressive Democrats, uh, Elizabeth Warren, for example, and others have criticized it and saying it's going much too far. You know, watch out. Under the cover of a bill designed to relieve conditions for community banks, you've got lots of these um, elements that uh, benefit much bigger banks. And so what's the likelihood that this actual bill will make it to the president's desk and be signed? It's fair to say this is the best bet. Uh, You were talking about President Trump's initial pledges to make life easier for the big banks. This is the best bet of doing it from a legislative point of view. Uh, There are conditions in there that it's very easy to sell to a populace that wants, uh, you know, more lending, that wants looser uh, mortgage underwriting. It wants, um, you know, more available loans to small businesses. And you can certainly make the case that uh, things have been too restrictive over the past few years. Okay. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Caroline here in the studio and Ben in New York. And also thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corian provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.